you, but I hope and pray that it will guide our understanding and our practice both now and into the future. Paul begins chapter 12, verse 1, by saying this. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, so he's writing to believers. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now where I grew up in Kentucky, ignorant had two meanings. One was the textbook definition of someone not knowing something because they'd never heard about it, they'd never been taught or educated on that topic. For example, I am ignorant of astrophysics. I think physics is the study of motion, how things move, and some math stuff thrown in with it, if, if memory serves me correctly. And astro, I think, relates to outer space, things of outer space, or the Jetson's dog, one of those. <laughs> So then putting that together, I would think then astrophysics, maybe how things move in outer space or how the Jetsons dog moved, you know, something along those lines. I I did look it up and it is about stuff moving in outer space, but I would have a much better shot with questions about the Jetsons dog, I assure you, uh, than astrophysics. So that's the textbook definition of ignorant, simply never having been taught, therefore ignorant or uneducated about something. But we had a more... um, cultural understanding of ignorant in Kentucky. It meant that someone knew or should have known something, but they acted in a um, non-intelligent, shall we say, way uh, in something where they, they should have known better than what they actually did. For example, let's say hypothetically that there's a young redheaded freckled boy about the age of nine or 10 growing up in central Kentucky who one day decided he was going to test his jumping skills. So this young man stood in a doorway and hypothetically thinks to himself, I wonder if I can jump up and touch the top of my head to the bottom of this door frame. Now remember, this is hypothetical, okay? But perhaps that young man, without thinking about where his eyes are located, and he's not going to be able to see how close he's getting to this door frame and not being too familiar with the laws of physics, as maybe was just stated, crouches in this doorway and jumps as hard as he can toward the top of this door frame. Now, hypothetically, this young man would probably then be lying in the floor in that doorway with tears streaming down his cheeks in pain because his head, neck, and spine just went kink, kink, like this. And so maybe as he's lying there, his father would come walking through the house and look at him and say, if his young man, hypothetically, his name was Curtis, and say, Curtis, what in the world are you doing? And he would explain to his father about his little experiment here. And his dad would look at him and say, well, son, why in the world did you do that? Are you ignorant or something? (laughs) So then you would understand this concept of someone who should have known better, but didn't act upon that knowledge and the learning that they had received and should have put into practice. Now that's hypothetical, right? I wish it were hypothetical as this knot on the top of my cranium here suggests. The Apostle Paul said he didn't want the Corinthian church to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. And I think you can argue that he really had both uh, definitions of ignorant in mind here. Because in this section, in chapters 12 through 14, he would educate, he would teach, he would impart knowledge about spiritual gifts to uh, the church. But remember that Paul had already spent a large amount of time in this church ministering, teaching them, uh, sharing with them biblical truths and principles and, and doctrine and theology. 
So in the course of that time there, Paul had already instructed them somewhat about spiritual gifts. And as he writes, he's assuming that they knew certain things and that they were supposed to be putting these things into practice. But they weren't really putting them into practice in a way that Paul had described. And they should have known these things, but they weren't following through. And so Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth. And if you have ever read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul addressed a number of serious issues, blatant sins in the life of the church there at Corinth. This church had major, major sin issues. And at best, we would say, well, they misunderstood or they misinterpreted some of the things that Paul had taught or that Paul had instructed in them. So that's at the best. It's a misunderstanding. At worst, they were simply tolerating false teachings lies and heresy and they were accepting it and they were acting upon it and so Paul doesn't mince words in writing this letter to the Corinthians saying stop doing what you're doing it is a sin against God it's a sin against other people so do not tolerate these behaviors any longer and Paul pulled no punches in telling them uh, to to stop doing these things and to get serious about correcting some of their mistakes And based on some of the comments that Paul makes in these three chapters, we see that there was a misunderstanding. There had been misuse of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church. It appears that some people were exercising their spiritual gifts in such a way that when the church got together, it was creating chaos and confusion for people. Look in chapter 14. If you'll flip over about two chapters. Chapter 14, verse 29. Paul here says, Two or three prophets should speak. Now, prophets were individuals who were giving words, uh, a word from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, this is what God wants you to know or understand or hear today. So he says, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. So we see here the biblical admonition to test the spirits, to weigh the message that is being given, to ensure that it is from God, to make sure that the spirit that's leading this person to say this message is really the Holy Spirit of God and it's not satanic or demonic influence trying to give false or heretical teachings to the church. So the implication is that people were standing up and they were just saying whatever they wanted. And people then were listening to these messages and they were believing and they were acting upon the messages that were being spoken. He says this, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. It's an important part. Instructed and encouraged, Paul says. The spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder but of peace. And some translations in the place of worth, uh, the place of peace use the word order. That God is not a God of disorder, but a God of order. And either word is fair there. It simply means of a structure, of format, or of a plan, or, or a, a way of working things together that, that makes sense and doesn't create confusion. Now, if you remember, this is during the birth and the infancy of the early church. Paul was an apostle, and this is part of his missionary journey. He was going out, and he was going to cities. He was preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. People were listening. Uh, They would be saved, and they would begin to meet in house churches. And so the church would gather together in those small bodies and was beginning to spread its reach into outlying regions. So the, the church is growing and developing. And so things looked and operated a little bit differently in that time. And we've spoken about these, about speaking 
speaking in tongues, some of the sign gifts as God giving his stamp of approval that this work is from me. And so these prophetic words that are being spoken that Paul's talking of, people would stand up and say, this is what the Lord says. And they would give teaching. They would give instruction. That was authoritative. It was from God. And many of those words and messages came to be written down and canonized in the scripture, in the Bible we have today. So, so these are when these words are being spoken. And so people are listening for authority from God. But apparently what was happening was as the church gathered together, these times would sometimes get chaotic. People would stand up and say, I have, quote unquote, a word from the Lord. And they would deliver this message. And then another person speaking at the same time or following up with that. And they're delivering their, quote unquote, word from the Lord. And there's this confusion. People are like, which message do we listen to? And it got to a point that even that they were not just talking over one another, but they were giving contradictory messages. One person was saying this and one person was saying this. And people in the middle going, which message do we believe? Which one is really, truly from the Lord. So if you'll flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you will see how bad this chaos had gotten. That Paul, the very first thing he's going to tell them and not being ignorant about spiritual gifts and testing those spiritual gifts, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says in verse 3, he says, therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, why would Paul write that sentence? Well, apparently because he had received word that in this environment of prophesying and people speaking in these tongues and these languages and their word from the Lord, someone had said, Jesus be cursed. And people listened and they received and they heard that message and they're kind of weighing and thinking about how they would act upon that. And they had tolerated someone standing up as they assembled together saying, Jesus be cursed. And God led the apostle Paul to write and to tell them, absolutely not. This is not going to happen. Paul says, you evaluate the message, you weigh what is being spoken. And if someone says, here's a baseline, this is a starting point for you. If someone says, Jesus be cursed, that message isn't from God. I mean, you'd look at that and you'd think, well, duh, wouldn't they get this? I mean, you can almost hear Paul saying, are you ignorant or something? I mean, can you not understand that if somebody says, Jesus be cursed, that's not a message from God. And so he's telling them, you listen, you wait, and you, you exercise these gifts in an orderly fashion, uh, not to create division and disunity and disharmony, uh, but to encourage and to instruct one another using the spiritual gifts. So this brings us to our first principle about spiritual gifts, and it's this. Spiritual gifts are intended to build up, to unify, and strengthen the church. Look at verse seven, what Paul says. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit. So the manifestation, that word means uh, the, the working out or the putting into practice. So the Holy Spirit works himself out. He is evidenced. He works through our lives, through our spiritual gifts. So the manifestation of the spirit through our spiritual gifts, he says, is given for what? For the common good. For the good of everybody. So it's to unify, to build up, and to strengthen everyone in the church within the body. You know, it's a tragedy that spiritual gifts have been one of the most divisive issues facing the church since its inception. 
Uh, we see that it started here in the Corinthian church. If you go all the way back to Acts chapter 2, uh, when the Holy Spirit fell and they began to speak in tongues of other languages, proclaiming the gospel in other languages that they hadn't learned and hadn't studied uh, as this gift was being exercised then, what was the first accusation that people made about the disciples and those who were speaking in those tongues? They're drunk. It was early in the morning. These men are drunk already. There was confusion about that from its very beginning in the church. And I want to tell you, it's still an issue today. I mean, we see it in churches and denomination and mission agencies, this misunderstanding and misinterpretation of spiritual gifts. And that shouldn't be the case. Because if someone is exercising a gift that's creating disharmony or disunity or tearing down the church, one of two things is happening. They are either A, not exercising a true biblical spiritual gift, or they are misinterpreting the gift that they're using. You've heard people say this before. If it doesn't look like a duck, walk like a duck, or quack like a duck, what is it? Well, it can be a lot of things, but it's not a duck, all right? So if you've got a, a true biblical spiritual gift, it's going to build up and edify and strengthen the church. And if someone is exercising this quote-unquote gift that's creating dissension and disharmony, then it's not a biblical spiritual gift. Or it is possible for a person to have a spiritual gift, but to misinterpret its use in the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 14 highlights that speaking in tongues was one example of this misinterpretation and use of a valid spiritual gift. Uh, And Satan is the one who will take and who will twist and distort a spiritual gift so that it tears down instead of builds up the body of Christ. And so in chapter 14, uh, Paul has to set straight their misunderstanding, their misusage uh, of this gift in the early church. But you see, the other thing that Satan does with spiritual gifts is he, uh, he... He knows that we've been given a a passion and a burden and a gift and we get excited about those things and we're motivated to use that spiritual gift. And he causes us to look down on those who don't have our spiritual gift. If they're not passionate about the things that we're passionate about, if they don't do things the way that we think they should be done or they don't respond and think and approach things in this way, well, they're not as spiritual as me because this is the way the Lord's called me. Therefore, we think everybody should be wired like me. And if they're not doing it this way and don't have this burden, well, they're not quite as spiritual. But that's not the case. That's Satan trying to use that gift to, to, to create camps and walls and, and silos, if you will. We sometimes refer to their silos in ministry. People in this silo say, this is where it's at. And people in this silo say, no, this is where it's at. And people in this silo say, this is where it's at. And it's not about multiple silos. It's one silo in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit for God's glory and honor that we're all in there together. And so we shouldn't allow Satan to distort and, and to do, uh, create that dissension in the body of Christ. But I'll tell you that principle number one is complicated because of principle number two, which is this. There are a variety of gifts. There are a variety of gifts in the body. Look at what Paul says in chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he's referring to there. Verse 5, there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, referring to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who guides and directs us in all that we do. And then he says in verse 6, there are different kinds of working and a supernatural empowerment, different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. So Paul uses spiritual gifts to go back to, and he identifies spiritual gifts with the Trinity 
to show us that even though there are differences in variety, there is still unity and harmony. He talks about the Trinity. You're familiar with that concept that there's God the Father, Jesus the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, who all three are separate and unique, but are all three still one because there is one God. And so Paul says that there is the there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, different kinds of service, but the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and different kinds of working, but the same God works in all all of them and all men. So we have the Father, Son, and the Spirit identified there in the context of using spiritual gifts. There's variety, there's diversity, but we're still unified under the lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father. So he ties all those together and uses that picture to to show us how they can work together even though they're different. So this morning, I want to run through some bullet points uh, to help give you a foundation for understanding the diversity of spiritual gifts, the application of spiritual gifts, and even the motivation uh, for using our spiritual gifts. So we'll run through these uh, this morning, and then uh, we'll wrap up with some applications for us uh, here and now in that. Number one, recognize that spiritual gifts are not talents. Spiritual gifts are not talents. Uh, Natural talents and skills and abilities, those things are from God because the Bible tells us that everything that's good and worthwhile comes from God. But believers and unbelievers alike share natural talents and skills and abilities. I mean, there are musicians and artists in the world today who are incredibly gifted and talented, but they are as immoral and ungodly and pagan as you could ever possibly imagine. But they're very gifted and talented people. God gave those gifts and those talents to believers and unbelievers. Just as there are great scientists and athletes and carpenters and cooks uh, who are atheists or or, uh, agnostic at best in their faith belief and in their practices. Now, some believers may excel in areas of, of natural giftedness and talent and abilities. But their success has nothing to do with their salvation, being saved in Jesus Christ and supernaturally equipped uh, with those talents and abilities. And we see the flip side of that, that unbe- unbelievers may surrender their lives uh, to Jesus Christ and begin using their talents for Christ, but they had possessed those before they were ever saved. So it's the usage of what God had given them, uh, whether they were saved uh, or before they came to Christ. But you see, spiritual gifts, by contrast, are supernaturally given only to believers by the Holy Spirit of God. They're given only to believers supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Uh, They are special capacities that are given uh, to help equip believers to minister to other people, especially to other believers. So God gives a a special ability or a special capacity to do certain things within the life and the work of the church to minister uh, to other people. Now, your spiritual gifts can flow over, they they can overflow into your work environment and to your your leadership areas and other things that you do. They can impact those things, but God allows your spiritual gift to impact those things as a way of of broadening your influence or opening doors for you uh, because of your success and how God uses that spiritual gift to be able to, again, bring glory to himself, that that he would be, that you would recognize, hey, this gift is from the Lord, and as people ask about it, and the recognitions come for the gift and the giftedness that you've received or you display, you can say, this is what the Lord has done in my life, and you give him the glory and the honor for that. Uh, Next, remember that every believer receives at least one spiritual gift. 
You may have more. Uh, many people do have more than one spiritual gift, but every believer has at least one spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit. Now, your spiritual gifts grow and develop, uh, or, and sometimes they weaken uh, from lack of usage or just as God grows you through and goes through certain seasons in your life. It's not at all uncommon to have people who maybe have uh, walked in a certain spiritual giftedness and, and felt like the Lord used them in some areas to over time grow in other areas and kind of move out of some area of service into another thing that God uh, can grow and develop us in different areas of spiritual giftedness. As a teaching aid, and only as a teaching aid, because you can debate this idea and when, I, I confess that. It's not specified in Scripture, but I think it is useful in helping us understand spiritual gifts. You can basically categorize spiritual gifts in, in two categories, two ways, uh, as either speaking gifts or serving gifts. And they do what they say. Speaking gifts are exercised primarily through speaking and teaching and instructing. So serving gifts would then uh, most commonly be exercised how? Through serving. Good. I heard that over there. You're on top of it. Yeah, serving gifts would be serving. You guys, are, you guys are good. Now, that doesn't mean that speaking gifts never serve or that serving gifts never speak, but that generally and most naturally they work themselves out in those two ways. Next, remember that there is no definitive list of gifts given in Scripture. There are a couple of different passages that list the spiritual gifts, but the lists vary. Now, some people argue that, you know, list A and list B, they've got different words, but really they're referring to the same gift, just calling it different words. And that's fine. You, you know, you can make a discussion for that. But the fact that there is some, some ambiguity uh, among the gifts helps us recognize that, that God's intent was not to give us a rigid, uh, specific, exhaustive list of gifts, but to say, trust me, follow me, and let me guide you. And if you're strong in this gift and I grow you into another area, then you need to follow in that and not get so worried about the definition of gifts and following uh, the set list that we see or don't see there because there is no exhaustive, clearly defined list given. Next, we understand that each gift can be manifested. That is, it can be used or worked out in different ways. For example, three people may have the gift of teaching. One person loves teaching children. I mean, they, they love kids. They want to be around them. They can't imagine doing anything but sitting down and opening the truths of God's word and presenting them in a way that children can understand and grasp and can leave that classroom that day saying, here's what God teaches, here's what God says to us, or this is what God means to us and, and, uh, and what we see in the Bible. So they love teaching children. Another may love working with, with married couples and, and, and investing their lives in those. Another may enjoy being in a senior adult area or with students. But that gift of teaching can be used and manifested in a lot of different ways. And all of the gifts are that way. Uh, you know, a spiritual gift is not, sometimes confusion comes thinking it's an age group ministry. Well, it's not just an age group ministry. Every gift can be used uh, in every area area of ministry based on the unique call and burden that God gives to every person because God does call and God does give us a burden, each one of us, for different areas of ministry and areas of service to him. Uh, understand this, that spiritual gifts are given to us. They're given to us, but for other people. They're not for our benefit, but they're for us to be able to serve and minister to other people. And you will be most blessed when you use the spiritual gifts God has given you in the power of the Holy Spirit to serve other people. But remember now, blessing, you being blessed, is a byproduct of you using the spiritual gift. It's not the purpose of a spiritual gift, 
Okay, spiritual gifts are given to glorify God, to build up the body of Christ, and allow the body of Christ to fulfill its mission, which is that of proclaiming the gospel. That's why you've been given a gift. That's the purpose that God has given and has designed you to use that gift. But as you do that, and as you glorify God and honor Christ by building up the church and proclaim the gospel, you are blessed. So it's a secondary result. It's not primary uh, that you would be blessed uh, in that way. But blessings do come as you use the gift God's given to you to serve other people. And this is important here, remembering that all gifts are to be exercised in love. Love is our motivating factor. It is our test, our standard of measuring the use of our gifts, of our talents, and of our abilities. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm sorry, 13, chapter 13. And actually, it's the last half of verse 31 from 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, and now I will, uh, will show you the most excellent way. So in a discussion about spiritual gifts and using those gifts, Paul says, I'm going to show you the most excellent way, the best way for you to use these spiritual gifts. He says in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Look at verse 8. He says, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. So Paul says these spiritual gifts, these things, these things are going to end. There's going to be a time when the working out of those things will no longer take place. But look in verse 13, how he wraps up this chapter. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Many of you have heard this passage, and I don't know if you ever really rightly understood that that passage comes in the context of spiritual gifts. It's an amazing thing that Paul says, let love be the driving force on you using and, and implementing the spiritual gifts that God has given you. So test your spiritual gifts, your usage of your spiritual gifts against the measure, the standard of love question as simple as this does my using this gift does it express God's love in some way to other people and as a result of expressing God's love to other people it is an expression of love and obedience to God himself just ask yourself that simple question is me using this gift this talent this ability is it loving other people which is in turn loving God in obedience to him it's a very simple question Next thing to remember about spiritual gifts is that God is the one who empowers and makes spiritual gifts effective. God's the one who empowers and makes spiritual gifts effective. It's not our strength. It's not our power. Uh, it's not our creativity. It's God working through us. The only part we play in this area is that of being pure from sin. Because God can have no part of sin and him becomes a hindrance and an obstacle in our relationship with God and us experiencing the fullness of his power and presence. So, so our part is to, to try and be pure from sin and ask God to help us uh, overcome temptation and steer away from that and be forgiven when sin comes into our lives. But also that of being willing to be used by God so the Holy Spirit can, can work through our surrendered lives. 
So we try to stay free from sin and just live with a spirit of, yes, Lord, whatever it is you've called me to, I want to surrender and empty myself of you and be filled with your Holy Spirit. Next, recognize that all spiritual gifts are important to the body of Christ. All of them are important to the body of Christ. There's no clear hierarchy of gifts listed in Scripture. And this was another problem facing the Corinthian church. Uh, People were seeing one gift in particular, the gift of speaking in tongues. And they saw that as the best gift to have, the coolest gift to have, was this of speaking in tongues. Uh, and scholars have debated that there's a debate uh, on two sides of this, uh, this dominance of this gift in the Corinthian church. One is that God had really gifted a lot of people in the Corinthian church to be able to speak in tongues uh, to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And maybe that was the case because Corinth was a hub culturally of different uh, races and nations coming through. And so God was giving a lot of people speaking in tongues so that these uh, foreign peoples coming in could hear the gospel proclaimed in their message. So maybe God had given a lot of people the ability to speak in tongues. Or maybe God had just given a few the ability to speak in tongues and there are people going, but I really want that gift and I want that gift. So I'm going to start saying I have that gift and I'm going to start just kind of speaking in tongues. And they, they started this and, you know, making up their own language or, or just exercising this gift in some way. And it created this confusion, this chaos that I mentioned early, earlier uh, because there were so many who were either had the gift or who were desiring the gift and they weren't using it in an orderly fashion. So Paul had to speak to that. In chapter uh, 14, verse 12, Paul is speaking to that. All of chapter 14, most of chapter 14 uh, is him speaking of this gift of, of tongues and prophecy. Uh, with a lot of discussion being given about tongues. But in verse 12, he says, Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to, ex- try to excel in gifts that build up the church. So if you want gifts, don't just do the one that you think you know, looks cool or different, but have gifts that build up and encourage and affirm the church. And he outlines in verse 19 how that works with one of the gifts and why he would prefer one gift over another. He says in verse 19, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You know, we just talked about using in love. Paul says five words to instruct is showing love and it's encouraging others. But 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody can understand, uh, there, there's confusion and nobody interprets. And so they don't understand the word from the Lord. So I'd rather do the five that people understand than 10,000 they don't. And he tells them in verse 20, remember the breaking of verses is ours. It's not like Paul's changing another section here. He says, brothers, stop thinking like children. Well, why would he say that? Well, because they were thinking like children and their thinking was wrong. Well, how do kids think? They think, I see that, I like that, I want that. So I'm going to get that. Now, maybe your all's children didn't respond that way, but my children can respond like that. And they can sometimes do some unhealthy and ungodly things to get what they want. They don't need it. Or maybe we've even told them, no, we're not going to give it to you. But it still works itself out in their life. They have these desires that causes them to sin and disobedience because they want it. And just because they want it, they're going to get it. And so Paul says, don't think like children, don't desire those things and then do anything to get what you want. What do we teach children? Sometimes the answer is no. You're not always going to get what you want. You need to exercise self-control. You need to control yourself and discipline yourself to know I'm not going uh, to receive and get this and learn to be content with what you have. And Paul says, you've all been given a spiritual gift. Be content with your gift. Use the gift that God has given you because God gave it to you for a very specific purpose, for a very specific reason, and he wants you to use that gift to help, to build up, to encourage the whole body in love. So he tells them, don't think 
like children. And, you know, he'd already set their thinking straight on this issue in the last half of chapter 12. And in, in that part of the, the scripture, he uses the analogy of the body to describe how important it was that all the gifts work together. I'm not going to read that section to you, but basically Paul said every part of the body is important. And all of it must work together if that body is going to function properly. If the eyes don't cooperate, the body is hindered. It is hampered in what it should do. I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but there's been a lot of pollen in this area in the last two weeks. And I wear contact lenses. I have hard contact lenses, which are much thicker than regular contact lenses. And there have been so many times a gust of wind has blown and I'll get pollen in there. It's like a, just gravel on my eyelids. Everything stops when I get that pollen in my eyes. I'm like, I'll be with you in a minute. I can't see because I've tried to just ignore it and go on. And just tears are streaming. My eye gets all red and puffy. People are like, are you okay? You know, I'm just, I, I look terrible because the eye's not working properly because there's this foreign body in there. And so that's what Paul's saying. If the eyes aren't functioning properly, the whole body is hindered. If the hands aren't working, doing what the hands are supposed to do, the body is, is hampered and hindered and the legs and the feet and the, the mouth and the eyes and the nose and the ears. Everything has a part and it all needs to do its part so the body can be healthy and function properly. And he says, spiritually, you are the body of Christ. And every part needs to do its work so the body is healthy and can function properly. So we need to find out our part and then do our part to help the body be healthy and productive for God's kingdom. Well, I'm going to wrap it up and, and land it here on this topic of spiritual gifts. But I, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about how you can begin to put this into practice in your life and what this means for us today. And first thing is this. On the back of your sermon note sheet, there's a website listed with some instructions about how you can log on, uh, on, on this website and you can take a free spiritual gift assessment or, or inventory. It's not a test. I told you last week uh, this is a man-made uh, test, a man-made uh, measure put together on a spiritual truth so you can't quantify it so we call it an assessment or an inventory uh, so it's not absolute but I do think it's very helpful that's why I'm making it available to you and, and, and asking you to take it it is free of charge so log on it'll take you about 20 minutes uh, to take this test and then you'll get a score it'll tell you uh, based on nine uh, spiritual gifts that this kind of uh, measures or assesses in your life it'll tell you the higher ranking ones and then it'll give you a report you'll get a uh, something to come up that you can print out which will describe this gift and you can read it and some people read it and go it's amazing that they, they must have followed me around to write this you know just because I, I think and operate like this others read it and go mm, you know I'm not so sure and that's okay maybe it's not and if, if there's some ambiguity or sort of some uh, if it, you don't really feel like it fits ask some people who are close to you who know you will have them look at it maybe give their assessment to it or look at some of the gifts that uh, you think may fit so uh, you're able to do that if you don't have internet access because I want you to take this inventory and begin this education process uh, there's a table in the foyer and we have hard copies you can take it's got the inventory and the answer sheet you can use a pen or pencil uh, you can fill that out you can return it to us just bring it back to church here drop it off in the office we will score it and then we will give you this information about the spiritual 
spiritual gifts. Even if you take the online inventory, it'll send us a copy of it. So we'll have that and we're kind of using that and praying through that as we try to fill ministry positions and area of service in our church. But stop by in the next couple of weeks because I've got additional information I want to give you about these spiritual gifts that, that, that we learn and understand. So it's important that you learn and educate yourself on this because Paul said, don't be ignorant. All right. And so if you've just never been taught, well, then don't be ignorant in that way. And if you know better and know your gift and aren't using it, well, then don't be ignorant. All right. It's time to get you in the game. This isn't just about education so that you know your gift. It's about helping motivate and move you into, into service in the church. So taking the inventory uh, and looking at that. But then secondly, tonight from five to six, uh, I'm going to do a seminar on spiritual gifts here in the chapel. Go out these doors. Uh, it's right there on the left. It's free. Just bring your pen your pencil and a Bible. And I'm going to talk about each of these nine gifts that are scored in the assessment and give a little bit of an overview and an understanding of those gifts and even talk a little bit about those sign gifts that everybody wants to know. What about speaking in tongues and healings and knowledge and all that? We'll talk some about that tonight uh, from five to six. Child care is available for that. So I encourage you to come out and be a part of that uh, just to continue your learning. But again, this isn't just about knowledge. It's about putting these things to work in the church and moving you to put that gift to work. But you know, the truth of the matter is the fact that God calls us to a task and and sets things before us, it can be intimidating to us sometimes. When we think about what it is that God has called us to, because we look at ourselves and go, I'm sinful. I'm weak. I I just, I I know I'm not, you know, as smart as other people. I don't know as many Bible verses. You know, I I haven't been in church that long or what. And we give all these excuses and reasons and go, well, the Lord, he couldn't call me to, to do this. Or maybe he's calling, but I couldn't do this. And we give all these reasons and excuses and it intimidates us. We're afraid of stepping out and doing what it is maybe the Lord has called us to do. And that's the case because God always calls us to something bigger than ourselves. So it should strike fear and and pause and reservation within us where we evaluate and say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you. That's what God wants us to do is, is to draw closer to him. But instead of allowing the call that God sets before us to paralyze us, because what is the call that God sets before us? It's that every person in the world would come to know and be able to hear the gospel and and surrender their heart and their life to Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty big task. And we say, wow, that's a lot. And that that can cause us to to be afraid and to not do anything at all. But I want to share a story with you to kind of help calm some of those fears. I want you to imagine that uh, Bill Gates approaches you and he tells you that he's bought this lot down here at the uh, corner of Conduit and Temple, just past Sheets down there, you know, where the, the creek runs through down there. He tells you he's bought that lot, and he wants to make that lot into a botanical garden that will win worldwide acclaim. I mean, media outlets from around the world are going to come and, and do stories and write articles about this botanical garden that's down there. Uh, people from miles around, from, from many states away, are going to want to drive and see this incredible botanical garden that's going to be down here on this corner just because he wants to bless Colonial Heights and he's just trying to give back to communities around America and uh, he, he even his thought is that this is going to be so unique so so different that it's going to be listed in the Guinness Book of World Records this, this botanical garden that's down there so you're going well, that's a pretty nice idea Mr. Gates thanks for sharing and he says and you know what I want you to oversee the project from the ground up, from, from clearing the lot to, you know, laying the foundation for everything, for building buildings and greenhouses and all this, I want you to oversee everything in bringing this uh, botanical garden to fruition. And he says, and because you're going to do that and as a way of, you know, motivating you for that, I'm going to give you $50,000 a day 
for doing this. So as you're picking your jaw, your jaw up off the floor, you're thinking, sign me up. But somewhere before your lips can get those words and your tongue starts moving, your brain kicks in and says, whoa, wait a second. You don't know anything about gardening or running a business or irrigation or any of those sort of things. What are you thinking? You will fail miserably. So that gives you pause for concern and you're saying, man, that sounds really good, but I just can't do it. And then as if he can read your mind, Bill Gates says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to give you everything you need to get the job done. Here's a credit card with no limit tied to my bank account. And you have standing accounts at every home improvement, gardening, uh, landscaping, nursery center and business in the area. And if you need consultants and experts to come in at every level and stage of this project, all you have to do is call and they're going to come and assist you and help walk you through every step of this project. And if you need me, my input, my ideas for any reason whatsoever, here's my cell phone. You call it and I will personally take your call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, do I need to sign a contract or is this a verbal agreement? Right? <laughs> sign me up. He's going to give you everything necessary and pay you uh, mucho bucks to be able to pull this off. I mean, would it get any simpler than that? Now I ask you, do you need me to draw any parallels from that fictional story to the truths from God's word that God has called you to a task that, yes, it's so much greater than yourself so that you'll say, God, I need you. And God says, I know you do. And I've given you everything. I've given you spiritual gifts and talents and abilities, given you gifts to accomplish this. I'm available to you at all times. In Matthew 28, he said, I will never, uh, he says, you, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's with you. And he says, and besides that, if there are gifts that are needed that you don't have, I've got those people in this body as well. And when they're doing their part and you're doing your part, everybody functions together to accomplish and do what I've called you to do. All God asks of you is that you say yes and that you surrender yourself to him and to doing things his way. So that's the question for you today. Will you surrender? First, will you surrender yourself spiritually and receive God's gift of salvation? Just like with spiritual gifts, God's given you the spiritual gifts. You didn't do anything to earn it and then he determined that. God has provided salvation for you. He thought about it. He sent Jesus to die for you so you could be uh, forgiven and saved from your sins. And he offers that gift to you through the Holy Spirit. So will you receive that gift of salvation? Pastors will be available today to talk with you about how you can receive forgiveness for your sins. The gift of eternal life and the Holy Spirit living within you to guide and direct you all the days of your life, if you would simply receive that gift today. But maybe your act of surrender this morning is simply telling God that you're done trying to do things your way and that you're willing to do things his way and on his terms. Lord, I surrender myself to you. Tell him that you'll use everything he's given you to accomplish the tasks and the work that he set before you.